The Federal Reserve is expected to approve another interest rate hike today in its latest effort to slow down inflation. It's Wednesday, May 3rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, the U.S. Surgeon General's warning about an epidemic of loneliness, which he says can lead to depression, anxiety, and suicide. It also increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, of dementia, stroke, and premature death. Also this hour, we hear from the Obama administration's Treasury Secretary about the fight over the debt ceiling, plus the impact of the Hollywood writers' strike, and... There were a lot of different transformations during the pandemic, a lot of new muscles built. How the pandemic both forced and helped Boston-area dance companies evolve. Forecast says showers today, highs in the 50s. It's 7.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. Authorities in Texas have arrested a suspect wanted in last week's deadly mass shooting that killed five people, including a child. Several agencies, including local Texas law enforcement and the FBI, have been searching for Francisco Oropesa for days. San Jacinto County Sheriff Greg Capers says he was found in a small town about 40 miles north of Houston. He was caught hiding in a closet underneath some laundry. They they effectively made the arrest. He is uninjured. Authorities say they acted after getting information that came in through an FBI tip line. Reports from Serbia say eight students and a school security guard were killed today in a shooting. NPR's Rob Schmitz reports authorities say a 14-year-old boy opened fire at a school in Belgrade. Police say they received a call about the shooting at school around 8.40 in the morning. Police arrested the suspect, a 7th grade student, after he reportedly fired several shots from his father's gun at other students and the school guard. Local media footage from the scene showed commotion outside the school as police removed the suspect, whose head was covered as officers led him to a car. Mass shootings in Serbia are rare, but authorities have repeatedly warned the public about a number of weapons left over in the country after war in the region in the 1990s. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Federal Reserve policymakers are wrapping up a two-day meeting today in Washington. Observers expect them to boost interest rates again. The central bank is acting aggressively to rein in sharp inflation. The Fed wants to see inflation running at an annual rate of about 2 percent. The last report showed inflation running at more than double that rate in March. New numbers from a national examination are painting a grim picture of history and civics education in the U.S. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo reports on the lowest scores in decades. New history scores from the nation's report card are the lowest recorded since the assessment began in 1994, and this year marked the first ever significant drop in civic scores. The National Assessment for Educational Progress, or NAEP, is a test administered every four years to a representative sampling of eighth graders across the country. Eighth graders' U.S. history score declined five points from 2018 to 2022, continuing a downward trend. Civic scores saw a smaller but still significant drop. In a statement, Education Secretary Miguel Cardona says the numbers, quote, further affirm the profound impact the pandemic had on student learning. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News. The Writers Guild of America is continuing its strike against Hollywood studios. Members are demanding better compensation for writing for programs that appear on streaming services. It's unclear what new contract talks may be scheduled. This is NPR. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Congressman Richard Neal says Congress has no choice but to raise the debt ceiling. As Adam Frenier reports, Neal's comments come amid a warning that the nation could default on its debts as soon as June 1st. Democrats are pushing to extend the borrowing limit while Republican House Speaker Kevin McCarthy wants any increase tied to spending cuts. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says lawmakers must take action soon to avoid hitting the debt ceiling. Neal, the top Democrat on the House Ways and Means Committee, says there needs to be a separation between dealing with debt and budgeting. This is not an argument about new spending. This is an argument about paying our bills. So I'm very comfortable with the vote that I would take on this, and I think that uh, some of the demagoguery that has surrounded this is reckless. Neil also agrees with some economists who say a default could touch off a global economic crisis. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Adam Frenier. The unofficial results are in after yesterday's special primary election in the Boston area. Former Biogen employee John Moran won the Democratic primary for former State Representative John Santiago's seat in the South End in Dorchester. Former City Hall staffer Bill McGregor won a three-way Democratic primary in a district that covers parts of Jamaica Plain, West Roxbury, and Brookline. Both are almost guaranteed to win the general election because they face no Republican opponents. An Ashland woman and her 18-month-old daughter are back in Massachusetts after escaping the conflict in Sudan. WBUR's Amy Sokolow has their story. Trillian Clifford and her daughter moved to the Sudanese capital of Khartoum for a teaching job. Months later, civil war erupted and the pair fled to Cairo, Egypt. Her sister-in-law, Rebecca Winter, recapped Clifford's journey via email. She says the 1,300-mile journey took more than 100 hours and included a bus convoy through the desert. Winter says armed soldiers stopped Clifford's bus several times and at least once demanded bribes from the passengers. Clifford told her family she's still processing everything that happened to her. She also says she's trying to help friends in Sudan who are still stuck at the border. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amy Sokolow. A new report finds that the number of child care providers lost since the start of the pandemic disproportionately affects low-income families and families of color in Boston. The report from the Boston Opportunity Agenda shows the city lost about 120 licensed child care providers. Most were home-based providers. The report also says there are gaps in child care access around the city. The time is seven minutes past seven. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Nuance. Discover how the Nuance Dragon Ambient Experience, or DAX, can help physicians improve efficiency so they may be more effective with their patients. Learn more at nuance.com slash WBUR. In sports, Red Sox rallied and beat the Toronto Blue Jays 7-6 at Fenway last night. The two teams play again tonight. At the Garden tonight, it's Game 2 in the playoff series between the Celtics and Philadelphia 76ers. Boston lost Game 1 of that series. Our weather forecast, showers today, temperatures in the 50s, more showers tonight, lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, cloudy, scattered showers, highs near 50 degrees, then it starts to slowly clear up. Some clouds on Friday with highs in the 50s, but sunshine expected both days this weekend. It is 46 degrees right now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. And I'm A. Martinez in Culver City, California. President Biden wants Congress to raise the debt ceiling, no strings attached, to pay debts that are due right now. However, Republicans won't sign off until Biden agrees to cut future spending first. So what will it take to resolve the impasse before June 1st? That's the date when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. could run out of cash. Jack Lew is a former Treasury Secretary who also served as chief of staff in the Obama White House. He faced a similar crisis in 2013. Secretary President Biden has to navigate between compromise and standing firm against demands for spending cuts. Uh, If you were Biden's chief of staff, what would you advise him? Well, he's in a position where he uh, faces a a Congress that um, is divided, uh, a House that has made uh, extreme demands uh, really just to pay the bills for spending that's already been committed and a history of being at the edge of the cliff, um, not knowing uh, how to resolve it. I think for that reason, uh, it's the right thing to say, you can't negotiate with a gun to your head, you can't negotiate over default, Congress has to raise the debt limit. But at the same time, you know, there's going to be a need to negotiate over fiscal policy, to the spending bills for this year, and they should immediately shift the negotiation to the thing that they have to do without the consequences of default on the other side. Uh, The history of these negotiations has gotten more and more polarized over the year, over the years. And uh, with one side willing to go right to the edge, um, you just can't take that risk. What about that short-term extension that House Republicans propose? Uh, Is it worth it to avoid default now only to have to pretty much start over later? Well, look, the, 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 the fact that the, the spending year uh, begins on October 1st and the debt limit uh, deadline appears to be as early as June 1st, according to the latest prediction, pr- projections by the Treasury Department, um, it does create uh, the problem that the, 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 the most catastrophic uh, fiscal consequence default comes before the funding of the government. And the thing that will have to be negotiated is the funding of the government. So there is an argument that to fund the government, figure out what you're able to do, and then do the debt limit means you split the negotiations. What we don't know is if after funding the government, you know, the House has the ability and the willingness to vote on the debt limit. I think that's the real question. The question is, will the Speaker of the House put on the floor a debt limit extension that can pass? And um, if there's a willingness to do that, the sequence would be better if the if the vote on on spending bills came first. You've been on this uh, edge before, uh, Secretary. Back when you were going through this, was there ever a, a shake the collar moment where someone in the room was saying, "We can't do this"? Look, if you go back to 2011, um, when we really were as close to going over the cliff as we've ever been. It was a long process, which began, if you remember, with President Obama and Speaker Boehner engaging in good faith negotiations for what was called the grand bargain. When that effort failed, and it failed because there just wasn't the ability for the two sides to agree on substance, the debate shifted into, well, what do you do about the debt limit? That was a really hard negotiation. The demands were very big. It was a lot of spending cuts that were being demanded. And you just couldn't get there with policy that the two sides could agree to. There was a moment when we were worried that we were days away from a default when those of us in the room said, there's not a substantive agreement here. There's going to need to be a process. We almost didn't make it. The fact that we almost didn't make it was terrifying. 
And coming out of that was the Budget Control Act, which is not good policy, but also the conviction that you couldn't get that close to the edge of the cliff ever again. And yet here we are again. Former uh, Treasury Secretary and White House Chief of Staff Jack Lew, thanks for the time. Good to be with you. The last time Sudanese-American journalist Ismail Kushkush was on NPR, he was stuck in Khartoum. We think they haven't uh, stormed the building yet because there are uh, several internationals in the building, but we just don't know um, how things are going to go. Um, there's also jet fighters, um, and we, we fear that uh, mistakenly a missile could hit the building. Um, there are four children in the building and uh, a few elderly in the building. But, but that's, that's the situation uh, we are at, at the moment. We reached him again for the first time in days. He's made it out of Sudan. You were trapped in a building in Khartoum with gunfire on both sides. How long were you stuck? Eight days. Eight days of water and food running low, of having to decide whether to stay or leave. After negotiating with soldiers who agreed to offer them temporary safe passage, 32 people, including six children who were trapped together, walked out of the building in Old Khartoum. The group split in two. One went westward. Ismail went south. We walked perhaps for an hour, looking at how the city had uh, was destroyed, many of the shops looted. We saw a large 50-seater bus coming into this particular compound. The bus was on its way to Egypt, so we said that if the space allowed, we'd like to go with this bus to Egypt, even if we just sat on the floor of the bus. So we made that agreement. At this point, five of us were able to continue the journey, paying for our seats, stay on this bus, uh, to head northward to Egypt. So it started with 32 people from the building, and it ended up with five people on that bus to, to the border. Yes. So you get to the border, which is a possible exit from the country. What did it look like, and what did you have to go through to get out? There was a long, long line of 50 theater buses, I would say 200 to 300 buses um, waiting to get into uh, the border. It took us one day just to get to the actual gate. Food was scarce, water was scarce, access to restrooms, finding ways to charge one's phone. Uh, I think all of this was just very difficult. Some slept in the bus, some on the sidewalk. We spent another day there. Um, trying to get our exit visas from Sudan and then our entry visas into Egypt. All of that took almost three days. How much did the entire trip cost? So the costs of traveling and trying to get out, I think, were increasing uh, by the hour. I'm hearing that the prices are just continuing to rise. The day before we paid, I think this, this, the cost of the seat was around $200. We paid $330. I'm hearing it's up to $700, $800 now. That's a lot of money anywhere. But for an average Sudanese family, is that something people can afford? Not most Sudanese families. The people who left in the first days are the Sudanese middle class and those who could afford to leave. Those who um, left um, Khartoum and the fighting in Khartoum uh, were the lucky ones. When you finally made it to Aswan, which was your first stop in Egypt after crossing the border, physically, how were you? I mean, after doing this arduous journey, I'm sure you weren't thinking about, oh, I'm tired or I'm hungry or thirsty until that moment. 
a swan literally was a <laughs> breath of fresh air. It's a quiet town. The water, the Nile waters in Aswan are clear compared to Khartoum or Cairo. Uh, the people were very welcoming. The large influx of Sudanese families into Aswan uh, made travel plans from Aswan to Cairo. Planes, trains, buses were booked for, for days in advance. So I ended up staying a few days in Aswan. It uh, it ended up being, I think, a good opportunity just to relax a little bit, uh, think about um, what had happened and about the next steps. When you think about what had happened, what has happened, and what you've been through, what are you thinking about? I think with the revolution in 2019, there was great hope that that would be the final episode of instability and that there would be a genuine transition into democracy. These events of the last few weeks um, put a further dent into that dream. I think one of the, one of the more one of the difficult things is realizing that I was at one of the very few generals in downtown Khartoum at the time, wanting to work and wanting to do the work that journalists should be doing at these times and not being able to do so, yeah. not having the full equipment, the backing, the support, being in the position to do so, but just realizing that I would not have been able to do any reporting safely by myself in that position. You sat stuck in a building because of gunfire for eight days, and then you walked out into a Khartoum that looked significantly different. If you could describe that city that you walked out into and what was most jarring about what you saw? Um, I had been wanting to write an essay about Khartoum, about the city of Khartoum. And walking through some of the streets and seeing the destruction of old buildings, places that you have memories, um, places that you've been with friends, and to see how in one week um, the destruction that came upon those places, in in one week um, all of that has changed. Um, But again, I think um, this, this is something that many of us um expected we had hoped that it wouldn't happen um but i think many of us are still committed um to some of those some same dreams that the revolution brought about in 2019. ismail kushkush a journalist who's covered sudan for many years and just got out of khartoum thank you so much for your time thank you This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, volunteers map some new trails for migrants who are desperate to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. It's 19 minutes past 7. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. 
Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón. Starts May 17th, amrep.org. BMW. The BMW i4 has a range of up to 301 miles. It's 100% electric and 100% BMW. And Comcast Business, with the Comcast Business Complete Connectivity Solution. It's cybersecurity, internet, and mobile, all from Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Vipa Fernandez. My mum gave me her fierce yet kind way of standing up against injustice. She had everyone's back, from the supermarket worker to people who might have gone hungry if she didn't bring them a meal. She taught me that we only rise if we all rise together. Thank your mum this Mother's Day with Winston Flowers from WBUR and you'll support the station that has your back. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. In our weather forecast, scattered showers today, temperatures in the 50s, more showers tonight with lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, clouds, showers, highs near 50 degrees and mostly cloudy on Friday with temperatures in the mid-50s. It is 48 degrees in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at paycom.com radio. From Progressive, Progressive Commercial Insurance protects small businesses from retailers to tradespeople. Progressive covers a variety of business needs with a range of coverages. More at progressivecommercial.com. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kaufman.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. The Biden administration is enforcing restrictions on who can apply for asylum at the U.S. southern border and how they go about it. Last year, more than 800 people died trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border without documentation. That's a record number. And migrant advocates tie that increase to border enforcement policies that they say drive people to desperate measures. NPR's Jasmine Gardst recently spent time with one group of activists that has been tracing these changes on the ground. Last summer, Jacqueline Arellano and James Cordero were out in the desert on the southwest border. It was a sweltering day. Around noon, they found a man, alone, in his 60s. He was wearing loafers and a wool sweater. He'd been lost for three days, and he'd been going to the top of every nearby mountain to try to get a better view of where to go, because he couldn't tell which direction was what. Arellano asked him where he was from. He told her Venezuela, but... Like, yo no tengo país. Like, I don't have a country. Like, I don't have a country to go to. I don't have anywhere else to go. Arellano and Cordero gave him water, food, and offered medical assistance. They were surprised, but not shocked. They were out in the desert because they run a nonprofit organization called Border Kindness. They drop off water, food, and first aid along migrant routes into the U.S. For the last eight years, they've worked mostly on the California border. But recently, they've been receiving a lot of reports of missing persons and deaths further east, the desert area between Arizona and California near Mexico. 
So they decided to draw a new map for their own use, tracing where this recent wave of migrants is coming through so they can start to leave aid. I just want to show you on the map, if we keep going up this way, the problem they face is how to draw a humanitarian aid map for people who don't want to be found. We got some clothes, uh, looks like some underwear, some socks. Items uh, left behind. The first step in drawing this new map is establishing that folks actually pass through here frequently. And as it turns out, the desert is far from deserted. In some parts, it looks more like a shipwreck scattered with signs of life seeking new life. Hairbrushes, toothbrushes, life vests for crossing the All-American Canal. That's the deadly aqueduct used by migrants to cross into the U.S. So I'm going to drop a pin with a note, and that is going to be where we leave supplies. Arellano and Cordero have become fluent in the language of discarded items. If the bottles and cans are made in Mexico, they belonged to migrants. The level of condensation in the bottles indicates how recently people came through here. The items tell the story of how immigration is changing. Arellano says it used to be predominantly Mexican and Central American, but now... We've been finding currency from Brazil, from Colombia, from Panama, from all over the place. And that's different. Discarded items also speak to how dangerous it is to cross this area. Along the way, we find multiple sets of coroner's gloves littered in the sand. Last year set a grisly record for the highest number of migrant deaths. Arellano says she's been increasingly running into people who are crossing alone, without a coyote, someone who is paid to guide migrants across the border. People are just winging it, like the man in the sweater. They don't have the preparation that you would expect that have no idea where they are and that have been walking for days without a sip of water. NPR reached out to Border Patrol, who told us, quote, most who choose to enter the U.S. unlawfully are unprepared for the life-threatening dangers they will face. Border Patrol has invested in programs, resources, and infrastructure to allow agents to accomplish their border security mission and preserve human life. Arellano says the combination of a closed border and increasingly inexperienced migrants is a recipe for disaster. Plus, there's the increasingly extreme weather. The summer of 2020, we experienced temperatures up to 130 degrees. And the summer, we just have to plan and prepare that it's going to be the hottest summer on record. That way we are ready. Which is why in some parts of this new route they're exploring, Arellano and Cordero are already leaving bottles of fresh water in bushy areas where people may take refuge from the sun. As we walk, Arellano points at a border patrol truck about a block away, watching us. She ignores them and goes to check on the water bottles she and Cordero left for migrants. Fresh. What does that mean? Someone cut it. Yeah, that's very intentionally slashed. This is where the group runs into one of the biggest hurdles in drawing a new map, people. They say sometimes when they leave these bottles of water, they return to find them destroyed. They don't know who's doing it, but there's plenty of people out here who disapprove of the work Border Kindness does. And if they recognize what the gallon is for, and will slash the water. As they move along, Arellano and Cordero find about a dozen destroyed water bottles, all slashed. 
Before calling it a day, they drive up to one last spot where a migrant was found dead from dehydration just a few months ago. In the nearby bushes, there's the usual shoes, socks, also a small child's pink winter glove and a tiny winter jacket. Yeah, this is definitely a kid's jacket. There was just a little girl's glove over there, and this is definitely a kid's jacket. Let me see what size. It's baby blue and filled with caked mud. Four T. Four T. It belonged to a four-year-old kid. They walk over to check on the water bottle they left here a few days ago to see if anyone was able to drink. But it, too, has been slashed open. Jasmine Garst, NPR News, California. News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, the U.S. Surgeon General's warning that the country is facing an epidemic of loneliness that he says harms mental and physical health. It's 730. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Masters in Applied Analytics at Boston College, a degree that helps students translate data insights into dynamic business models. bc.edu analytics. Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. And MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, powering the Engineering Design Workshop exhibit at the Museum of Science. MathWorks.com MOS. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Authorities in Texas say a tip led them to a house where they arrested the man wanted in the shooting deaths of five people northeast of Houston. Lucio Vasquez with Houston Public Media reports. Francisco Oropesa was arrested yesterday evening in a home about 10 miles away from the scene of the shooting in Cleveland, Texas. Police say he was found hiding in a closet under a pile of laundry in the home and was arrested without incident. Investigators say Oropesa opened fire on his neighbors last Friday after one of them asked him to stop firing a weapon on his rural property because of a sleeping baby. Members of the Writers Guild of America are demonstrating in Los Angeles and New York City. They walked off the job yesterday after their latest contract expired. Enid Zentelis is a striking writer in New York. We're seeking protections like the protection against AI robots writing our scripts and eliminating our jobs as writers, um, fair pay, the idea that we get residuals for our programming on streamers. Writers say they're losing money as streaming services become more popular. Late-night TV shows are now largely airing reruns. Another quarter-point hike in interest rates is expected to be announced today by the Federal Reserve. It would be the Fed's 10th rate increase since March of last year. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. For the first time in more than three years, Tufts Medical Center has no patients hospitalized for COVID. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey reports on this milestone. COVID numbers fluctuate, so the status is likely to be temporary. But Gabriela Andujar Vazquez, infectious disease doctor at Tufts, says it's a great achievement. The fact that we have no patients now for the first time since the pandemic started speaks to the multiple public health efforts that over time have led us to this point where we are seeing less severity of disease. State data shows about 200 people with COVID remain hospitalized across Massachusetts, though a tiny fraction are seriously ill. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal McCluskey. Another local Catholic high school will be closing at the end of this school year. Cambridge Mattion School will permanently shut down in June after 75 years in operation. The co-ed Catholic high school cites financial challenges as a reason. St. Joseph Prep in Brighton and Mount Alvernia School in Newton will also close at the end of this school year. The Massachusetts Attorney General wants safeguards in place if online lottery betting is legalized in the state. The online lottery idea is backed by Governor Healy and could happen as early as next year to compete with sports betting apps. AG Andrea Campbell says she's worried about advertising that might encourage people to bet outside their means. She also wants to make sure that technology is not marketed to those who are underage. The time is 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Plymouth Rock Assurance, auto and home insurance that strives to treat you with kindness and humanity because they believe there's never been a better time for nice. PlymouthRock.com. In sports, Celtics can even up their playoff series with the Sixers tonight. It's game two at the Garden and tip-off is at eight. For the second night in a row, the Red Sox came from behind to beat the Blue Jays. Boston won seven to six and the teams play again tonight. In our weather forecast, cloudy today, some scattered showers, temperatures in the 50s, more showers tonight, lows going down into the 40s. Tomorrow, clouds and scattered showers again, highs near 50. And for Friday, mostly cloudy, temperatures in the 50s. We should see sunshine both days this weekend. It is 48 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with the new season of Grace based on the detective novels by Peter James. Grace and more original mysteries, including The Bay and Karen Peary, are streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From Indeed, committed to helping businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from the Doris Duke Foundation, it's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm Amy Martinez. About half of all adults in the U.S. have experienced loneliness. That's according to a new report from Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. He claims there's an epidemic of loneliness and isolation and that it's bad for your health. He spoke on Tuesday to NPR's All Things Considered. I'm worried about this from a public health perspective because it turns out that being socially disconnected has real consequences for our health. It increases our risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide, but it also increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, of dementia, stroke, and premature death. 
For some possible solutions to this, we're turning to Eric Liu, co-founder of Citizen University, a nonprofit that aims to build community and civic awareness across America. Eric, how surprised were you by what the Surgeon General said? Well, A, um, thanks for having me. I I was not surprised, uh, unfortunately. I think um, everything that the Surgeon General said about the effects on the body of loneliness are true as well of the effects on the body politic. I think that uh, surprised me. That that part surprised me, Eric, because depression, okay, fine, anxiety, yes, but dementia, stroke, cardiovascular disease? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you think about the ways in which I mean, a broken heart is uh, is a physical diagnosis yeah. and it's a social diagnosis. When you are alone and disconnected, uh, there's more stress, there's more inflammation, there's more uh, anxiety, and that uh, that has effects not only on the body, but on the ways in which we see each other in community and feel connected to one another. What do you think is causing such widespread loneliness? Well, I think there's a lot of forces. Uh, one, of course, is just uh, we've come out of this pandemic, uh, and even though we um, want to pretend it's normal. I think there are deep, uh, persisting effects of that kind of forced uh, traumatic isolation. But I think much more deeply than that, and this is a problem that's been unfolding over decades, is the grinding inequality, the tectonic crushing uh, of people's sense of solidarity and connection to one another. And uh, the ways in which that's unfolded in the United States leaves people more isolated, more zero-sum in their thinking, and more uh, feeling like, you know what, I'm not sure I am. Uh, with you or you're with me. You know what? I, I think sometimes, too, with, when the pandemic shoved a lot of people into loneliness, Eric, but when people started coming back out into the world, I don't know if everyone followed. I think everyone assumed that everyone was just dying to get out, but I don't know if everyone followed that. Well, I think everybody um, wants to connect. It's a human uh, yearning. But uh, the reality, I mean, the phrase that came, that stuck uh, out for me in the Surgeon General's report was that we are sick, angry, and alone. Uh, when we get uh, this disconnected from one another. And I think the work that we do at Citizen University is so much about just inviting people into reconnecting with one another, into creating human bonds uh, in a way that our culture, our media, our social media um, do not really incentivize anymore. This isolation, Eric, what does it do to trust or, or or people being afraid? Well, I mean, I think it, uh, you know, the decline of trust uh, in American life is pretty well documented. And it's both a cause and an effect of this kind of isolation, fragmentation, um, and uh, and loneliness. Uh, and when you are disconnected from other people uh, over time, you will just stop believing that they have your interests in mind, that you could find common cause on on anything. And so much of the challenge that we have right now is far upstream of electoral politics and policy. It is a culture problem. Uh, That's why I think one of the things that's so important about the Surgeon General's report is this idea of we need to create a culture of connection, a civic culture in which we actually see one another's fates as entwined. Eric, I I work kind of alone, (laughs) like 2,000 miles away from everyone (laughs) I work with. Um, And I work overnights too. And I I know there's a lot of people just like me. And I I think I kind of prefer it being alone. But for someone like me, is is there a loneliness line that maybe I should be careful not to cross? Look, I think uh, we all uh, exist on a spectrum of how um, much we like alone time. But I would distinguish one thing. Solitude is not necessarily loneliness. Hmm. Solitude can be okay. It's necessary. It's recharging. But the question is, how much do we have social connection? How many bonds of trust and affection can we activate with people when we need them? Uh, when do we realize when we do need them? And I think being able to check in with ourselves individually, but also with each other in community, 
um, is the most important thing we can do. And it, uh, you know, one of our programs, uh, Civic Saturday, is, an, is a civic analog to a faith gathering that invites people yeah. to just come and meet strangers and actually rekindle faith in community. Eric Liu is the co-founder of Citizen University. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Eric, thanks. Thanks, A. A strike by Hollywood writers enters its second day after contract negotiations with the Hollywood studios broke off Monday, shutting down productions across the film, TV, and streaming industry. Piss up! Piss down! L.A. is a union town! Piss up! Those are the voices of Writers Guild of America members out on the picket line, and NPR's Mandalit Del Barco was out there with them, and she reports now. The writers were here protesting outside Netflix in Hollywood, chanting about corporate greed and holding picket signs that said things like, do the right thing. It all starts with a script, and succession without writers is just The Apprentice, and look how that worked out. My sign says I would write something clever, but I'm on strike. Screenwriter Maddie Whitby started writing sketch scripts for the internet eight years ago. She says she didn't get any residuals or pay when a streaming show she wrote ended up broadcast on Nickelodeon. Another writer, Zachary Arthur, said he's only been in Los Angeles for about three years, but he recently closed a deal with Warner Brothers for his own TV show. Now that's on hold. You have this top CEOs of these places making hundreds of millions of dollars. I think what we're looking for is something fair, you know, and I don't think uh, what we're asking for is unfair. There were protests outside other Hollywood studios and even in New York. Here outside Netflix, one writer wore a bear suit to walk the picket line. Another had a sign that warned Hollywood executives, you're going to be the villains in a limited series about this. Joy Gregory's sign was also pointed at negotiators for the studios. I like your offer as much as you like an angry female lead. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers say the studios did make a generous offer, and they say they're prepared to improve it, but Gregory isn't buying it. She remembers the last time the writers went on strike for 100 days back in 2007-2008. And here we are again. Someone explained to me when, early on in my time in the Guild, you know what, every 20 years or so we have to strike. So bleed out, Netflix. Gregory, who writes for a Hallmark show, says she's out here fighting for the future of her profession. And so we're standing out here and taking the hits that we're going to take to protect the rights for the next generation of writers. As some of the cars left through the gates, presumably with some executives who work inside, the protesters had a few words for them. The writers say they'll be back on the picket lines as long as it takes. Mandalit Del Barco, NPR News, Hollywood. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on Morning Edition, how the pandemic helped two Boston-area dance companies evolve. In our forecast, clouds, scattered showers today, highs in the 50s. Tonight, more showers, lows going down into the 40s. Tomorrow, cloudy with scattered showers again. Highs near 50 degrees and cloudy skies on Friday with temperatures in the mid-50s. It is 48 degrees in Boston.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Porter Square Books. Stand-up comedian Stephen Wright, author of Harold, speaks at Porter Square Books Boston Edition this Sunday. Details and registration at portersquarebooks.com. And Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com. Member FDIC. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. When stages went dark during the pandemic, dance companies across the region found new ways to connect with the community. WBUR's Christelle Guerra highlights two organizations that emerged with a greater commitment to their artistry and a determination to evolve. Through slow, fluid movement, two dancers from Lowell's Angkor dance troupe share a myth from their homeland, part of the folklore of how Cambodia came into being. A warrior in a monkey mask seeks to cross a bridge. A woman plays a mermaid who impedes his way and steals his heart. Each dancer angles their body with a flexibility and grace earned from a long-storied history, says executive director Bora Jimrum. We are at a third generation now. So the dancers who were dancing when they were like five or six in the 80s have children that are dancing now. This traditional dance style survived the Cambodian genocide in the mid-70s, where a communist regime killed millions. It traveled with refugees who attempted to preserve this heritage while they sought a new home in Lowell. Nearly 40 years later, it survived a pandemic. Angor's board president, Su J. Kim, says the last three years were initially... Devastating. So Angkor was already struggling a bit before the pandemic, right? Because we were they were struggling financially. They didn't have a full-time executive director. It was a matter of survival. Like, how do we figure out how to keep going from day to day? In-person classes shut down. They attempted to teach over Zoom, but the company still found itself adrift until an infusion of more than $300,000 in grants. Jim Room, who started last summer, now hopes to see them expand beyond dance, into language and musical lessons. We want to be able to give our young people the freedom and the creativity to do what they want to do. And we want to harness that. We want to engage that. She wants to be able to hire some of their instructors full-time and achieve pay equity. They also recently rented a space that will act as a costume department to put their culture on display and offer workshops. Victoria Fan started dancing when she was very little, both her mother and her grandmother are dancers. I feel like even though we've been here for like 37 years already, I feel like with this new space, it's like we're starting new. Like we're rebuilding ourselves. A few towns over, the Boston Ballet finds itself in a similar position, stabilizing and reconstructing. Instructor Anthony Randazzo corrects the positioning of dancer Skylar Weissen as he glides along the floor. Weissen is rehearsing for an upcoming production of the classical ballet, The Sleeping Beauty. I think because Sleeping Beauty is such like a 
pristine classical ballet and the music is so slow but you're doing these really technical steps you want everything to be very perfect very clean and make it look like no effort to the audience um, when in actuality it's a lot of effort the boston ballet is calling its current season an evolution touching on subjects like climate change as well as tackling commitments to a more inclusive workplace they've continued to host full company town halls on zoom that allow for more feedback says executive director Max Hodges. There were a lot of different transformations during the pandemic, a lot of new muscles built. And it does really feel like the transparency of the organization has has changed. There's more voices, there's more direct communication. And, and that's, I would say, a really positive evolution. While internal culture shifts, they're trying to understand audience behavior. Hodges says people now gravitate towards ballets with name recognition, like the Nutcracker and the Sleeping Beauty. If this is a short-term change in audience behavior, no problem. But if it's long-term, it starts to put at risk innovation in the field and some of the exciting new works that we invest in. They're also commissioning ballets from historically underrepresented voices and examining the canon to remove offensive stereotypes and other problematic portrayals. They're going into communities through UNI, a multimedia public art pop-up. When we think about how to challenge folks preconceived notions of what ballet is and and who it's for, I think that experience of walking into this immersive dome, seeing the innovative nature of the movement of Boston Ballet, seeing the gorgeous diversity of Boston Ballet's dancers, it's one of the ways we're reaching the community in new ways. Dance offers something communal, a moment that Hodges calls the catharsis of the crowd. It's a language one Bora Jim Room says dancers will find a way to express, one way or another. This miracle of movement is a part of the human experience. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Cristela Guerra. Tomorrow on Morning Edition, how two classical music organizations are using virtual streaming to connect with new audiences. Listen here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app. Coming up on Morning Edition, the U.S. premiere of French composer Philip Rameau's opera ballet, 300 Years after it was composed. And in about 20 minutes, we talk with the mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey, about why he was blocked from a recent White House Eid celebration. It's 10 minutes before 8. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America, offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer. When I was a kid growing up in England, my mother's favorite BBC radio station broadcast a radio play every afternoon. My brother and I would usually get home from school a few minutes before the play was about to end. We knew better than to say a word. We'd slide into our usual seats at the kitchen table. Mom would put the kettle on, cut us each a slice of homemade cake, 
Then we would sit in silence until the play ended and my mother returned from whatever cozy farmhouse, smuggler's den, foreign paradise or planet she had been transported to. I get my love of radio and its ability to transport us anywhere from her. Thanks, Mom. If you're looking for a meaningful way to say thanks to your mum on Mother's Day and support great storytelling at the same time, consider Winston Flowers from WBUR. Choose the perfect gift at WBUR.org. Here's a look at some of the top news stories this Wednesday morning. The Federal Reserve is expected to announce today its final interest rate increase of the year. The Fed has raised the rates, if it raises them today, 10 times in the past 14 months. In Serbia, police arrested a 14-year-old boy they say they say killed at least nine people at a school in Belgrade this morning. And the U.S. and Mexico have agreed on a new set of immigration policies aimed at deterring illegal border crossings. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR mobile app, also at WBUR.org. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. A school psychology graduate degree opens rewarding careers working with children. Scholarships available for fall, williamjames.edu. Our weather forecast, clouds, scattered showers today, highs in the upper 50s. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Amy Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldil. An opera is getting its world premiere this week, even though the original music and lyrics are about 280 years old. Musicologist Sylvie Bouesso. We don't know nothing about this opera, not the theater for which uh, it was intended, not the date of composition, and not why Rameau has not completed this opera. She recently completed Yo by 18th century French composer Jean-Philippe Rameau. It's my life, do you see? Yeah. <laughs> so I have the operas in my head to try to complete the work and give it a possible life at last after almost 300 years. It was quite a challenge, <laughs> believe me. That's incredible. You give it life on the stage for the first time. Yeah, I hope American public feels that. It's a gift, really. It's a gift. As it turns out, Io was most likely a draft for Platé, Rameau's first attempt at a comic opera and the most favored of his operas during his lifetime. Io has never been performed on stage before, and we got a sneak peek behind the scenes as a chamber orchestra rehearsed the music using Baroque period instruments with Avi Stein conducting from the harpsichord. Here we go. Fasten your seatbelts, the Opera Lafayette production, which gets its world premiere at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. this week, and an additional performance in New York next week pays tribute to Rococo. It's a dramatic and lavish style prevalent in the arts in late 18th century France. Machine Dazzle, a tall and curly-haired rising star in costume design, was tasked to make the outfits. His style fits perfectly with that period. It's anything but subtle. His outfits use excess in scale, color, texture, with hints of drag and burlesque featuring sequins, glitter, and found objects.
when we were reading through it, we were all laughing the whole time. I loved how funny it is. And I loved how short it is. You think of opera and you think of hours and hours, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but you know what I mean. It's a one-act opera ballet with five lead characters and six dancers and 16 chorus members. How fun. Images came to my mind. So you could already see it when you were first reading through the opera? Yes. There really is a lot of humor, and that's something I love to use in my work is humor. First, there's Eo. Jupiter is in love with her, and then Apollo is in love with her too, and then they go back and forth, but of course Eo only chooses one of them, and then there's a storm, and then enters the realm of possibility by way of pleasure and grace and playfulness. The French Rococo period. Mm-hmm. How does that aesthetic work with your own aesthetic? Completely natural. (laughs) It truly is a maximalist and more is more aesthetic. And everything is abundant and alive and beautiful and lush. And everything is like a dessert that has 20 layers. So sitting right in front of you, I see a multicolored wig and flowers. Tell me what that is. It is the wig for the main character of Eo. And uh, she is immortal. It is an ombre from like a dark auburn hair color. Um, then there's a, it goes to like a, like a fiery orange and then to a yellow. And it completely complements the costume that she is wearing, which is inspired by the EO moth. And based on the hair, this seems to be quite an over-the-top character. Well, the whole production is over the top. <laughs> Sometimes you start somewhere and there's no going back. You know? <laughs> but um, I have a sketch here that I could hold up. Yeah, I'd love to um, see it. So it's this long, floor-length, kind of like cape dress thing that is layered, and there's a whole red dress that goes underneath. But the whole cape is inspired by the eomoth, the wings, like the eyes on the moth. The the cape looks Um, like wings. Because the costume is so extreme, you can't just have any regular hairstyle. I found the perfect wig, and I styled it into this kind of modern, like, beehive. I'd love to hear more about the other costumes and sort of what you've created for them. Sure. So Jupiter and Apollo, they have mortal disguises. And Jupiter and Apollo are the gods that are fighting over Io. Correct. So, you know, Jupiter is Jupiter, Apollo is the sun. So they have their celestial costumes, but they don't get revealed until later. They kind of disguise themselves to woo. Eo is the female version of the moth, while Jupiter disguises himself as the the male version. Apollo isn't quite getting it right, and he's like a bit of a mess. Oh, wow. Um, It's like he, he threw out the net, but he kind of like failed. He got caught up in his own net, and he's draped in fish and seaweed and whatever. Yeah. Um... Uh, He's losing in the love triangle here, I think. He's losing, but his outfit is entertaining (laughs) nonetheless. Looking at your costumes, I don't think of the opera in the traditional sense. I see something Mm. of today. When you take an old opera, I think it's important to make it more current. Yeah. You can do that through, you know, adding little playful things. Like there might be a simmering romance between two heavenly bodies that Mm. I cannot disclose. I didn't want to create old historical looking costumes Mm -hmm. that gets done ad nauseum (laughs) you know what i mean i'm curious what are you thinking about for that first opening night when people will see the visual part of this creation 
I am going to be sitting in the back row so that I can see everyone's reactions. It will be very satisfying. I am an audience designer. I am a storyteller. I'm an entertainer. You can simply put costumes on someone and tell a story without them opening their mouth. All they have to do is walk across the room. Mm. And you can tell a story that way if you want to. If you can do that and pair it with an amazing opera, then you win. Costume designer Machine Dazzle, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Good job, guys. That's really great. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldil. And I'm A. Martinez. I'm All Things Considered executive producer Jonathan Kane, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates today for the 10th time in 14 months. It's Wednesday, May 3rd. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Coming up this hour, some observers say the Fed should take a breather on raising rates. It's not the case that we have to keep hammering away at trying to slow growth in the labor market to bring down inflation. We can have both. Also this hour, the so-called Nation's Report Card shows big drops in U.S. students' understanding of history and civics. Plus, the White House visit to Brazil, why the streaming economy is a factor in the Hollywood writers' strike, and artificial intelligence helping people find a match on dating apps. Forecast says scattered showers today. Highs in the 50s. It's 8.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Corva Coleman. After four days of searching, officials in Texas have arrested a man wanted in connection with the killings of five of his neighbors. From Houston Public Media, Jack Williams reports, Francisco Oropesa was picked up in a small town a few miles from where Friday night's shootings happened. Authorities say Oropesa was found under a pile of laundry in a closet in the small town of Cut and Shoot, about 40 miles north of Houston. He was arrested without incident and is charged with five counts of murder in the shooting deaths of his neighbors, including a young boy. This is the FBI's Jimmy Paul. The tip for the suspect's location came in through the FBI's tip line, and we just want to thank the person who had the courage and bravery to call in the suspect's location. More than 200 law enforcement officers had searched the area for nearly four days with few clues. Oropesa was arrested about 15 miles from where the shootings occurred. For NPR News, I'm Jack Williams in Houston. Meanwhile, local Texas law enforcement officials held another news conference last hour. They say they've arrested more people in the shooting case but would not offer details. Officials in Serbia say eight children and a school security guard have been killed in a mass shooting today in the capital, Belgrade. Officials say the suspected gunman is a seventh-grade boy who had his father's handgun. The Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates again this afternoon as part of its ongoing effort to curb inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley reports forecasters saying this could be the Fed's last rate hike for a while. 
The Federal Reserve has already raised interest rates nine times in just over a year, the most aggressive pace of rate hikes since the 1980s. With a resulting slowdown in economic growth and some signs of cooling in the job market, many forecasters think the Fed will raise rates once more this afternoon, then take a breather and let higher borrowing costs do their work. Higher interest rates make it more expensive to borrow money for a business, get a car loan, or carry a balance on your credit card. According to the Fed's preferred yardstick, annual inflation was 4.2 percent in March. That's down from a four-decade high last summer, but it's still more than double the Fed's target inflation rate of 2 percent. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. The Biden administration is preparing for a surge of migrants at the southern U.S. border. NPR's Giles Snyder reports on the decision to send 1,500 U.S. troops to the border. Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder says the 1,500 troops are being sent at the request of the Homeland Security Department and will begin arriving at the southern border next week, potentially the day before Trump-era COVID-19 restrictions expire on May 11th. Ryder says the deployment is for 90 days and that the troops are to take on administrative duties to free Border Patrol agents to perform their law enforcement responsibilities. NPR's Giles Snyder reporting. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. The city of Boston has lost about 120 licensed child care providers since the start of the pandemic. Most were home-based providers. WBUR's Carrie Young has more on a new report from the Boston Opportunity Agenda. The report says the loss of in-home family child care providers is significant from an equity perspective. This type of care is used more often by low-income families, parents who work non-traditional hours, and families of color. The report also shows access to child care varies a lot by neighborhood. Liz Walzak is the interim executive director of the Boston Opportunity Agenda. There are neighborhoods and communities in Boston where we have a large number of children and where having access to quality early education and care close to home is not an option. Walzak adds that there are some bright spots, including a pre-kindergarten expansion program through Boston schools. But slots for kids under two are still hard to find. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Carrie Young. Federal investigators have arrested a New Hampshire man for allegedly making bomb threats against Harvard University. Investigators say William Giordani threatened to detonate three bombs on Harvard's campus last month unless he received a Bitcoin payment. He's also accused of planting a tool bag containing fireworks on the Harvard campus as proof that his threats were real. Those threats prompted an evacuation of the area. This summer, more Boston neighborhoods will see streets closed off to cars. WBUR's John Bender explains. The city's open streets program is back. The city will close some roadways to vehicles during weekends this summer and fall for pedestrian safe activities. The events are expanding into two new neighborhoods, Austin Brighton and East Boston. Mayor Michelle Wu says the city is increasing the frequency of a similar program along Newberry Street, which will now close to vehicles every Sunday from July through mid-October. That is 10 more days events for residents and visitors to explore the eight-block, mile-long stretch of shops and restaurants, galleries and activities free from car traffic. 
Information on street closures, parking restrictions, and affected T-stops will be posted on the city's website. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm John Bender. Brewster is the latest Massachusetts community to ban the sale of miniature bottles of alcohol. Brewster officials say the bottles are a source of litter. The Telegram and Gazette reports the ban was approved at town meeting and will take effect next year. Similar bans have been adopted in communities such as Falmouth, Wareham, and Nantucket. Boston is considering one as well. The time is seven minutes past eight. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Complex Stories, working to turn big ideas into compelling videos, online experiences, presentations, reports, infographics, and more. ComplexStories.com. And an evening with Italian tenor Andrea Bocelli, live at TD Garden on December 6th. Tickets available now at Ticketmaster.com. In sports, Red Sox came from behind to beat the Toronto Blue Jays at Fenway last night. Final score was 7-6, to six, and the two teams play again tonight. At the Garden tonight, Game 2 between the Celtics and Sixers. Boston dropped Game 1 of that playoff series on Monday. Weather forecast is calling for clouds again today. Scattered showers as well. Temperatures in the upper 50s. Tonight, showers with lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, more showers. Temperatures around 50 degrees, cloudy on Friday with highs in the 50s, but we should see sunshine this weekend, both days, and temperatures in the 60s. It is 49 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include EBSCO, offering clinical decisions, support resources, and tools, including disease and condition content from Dynamed and drug information from Meritiv. Learn more at dynamedx.com. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Amy Martinez in Culver City, California, where Hollywood writers are on strike. They say they can't put together a living on what the streaming services are paying. That's coming up in about 14 minutes. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C., where we're watching the Federal Reserve's 14-month battle against inflation. Yeah, central bank is expected to raise interest rates again this afternoon, but forecasters think that could be the last rate hike for a while. Today's meeting comes on the heels of another bank failure, which could complicate the Fed's calculations. NPR's Scott Horsley joins us now to explain. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, Leila. So the Fed uses interest rate hikes to regulate inflation, which is still pretty high. Why is the Fed going to push the pause button after today? Well, they may. Uh, This would be the 10th rate hike in a row for the Fed, and you are beginning to feel the drag of those higher rates on the U.S. economy. Uh, The construction and manufacturing sectors, which are particularly sensitive to interest rates, are in a slump. Uh, Ordinary people are starting to spend less money. And the job market, although it's still pretty strong, is showing some signs of losing steam. So some observers think it's time for a pause in rate hikes. Lindsay Owens heads the Groundwork Collaborative. That's a progressive think tank here in Washington. She wants the Fed to take a breather and see if inflation continues to settle down. It's not the case that we have to keep hammering away at trying to slow growth in the labor market to bring down inflation. We can't have both. This has already been the most aggressive series of interest rate hikes since the 1980s. So it's gotten a lot more expensive to borrow money for a business or get a car loan or carry a balance on your credit card. Another increase today would bring the Fed's benchmark rate to just over 5%. And that's about where the average Fed policymaker said rates ought to end up this year. Now, how does the recent turmoil in the banking system affect the Fed's calculations? 
it's definitely something the Fed is watching. Over the weekend, we saw another bank go under with First Republic. Uh, mm-hmm. That follows the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank back in March. In the wake of these failures, other banks are likely to be more cautious about making loans. And so that's another speed bump for the economy. Uh, it acts kind of like higher interest rates, but it's not nearly so carefully calibrated. Economist Ian Shepardson of Pantheon Macroeconomics thinks the economy and the job market will be significantly weaker because of these bank failures, with an outright loss of jobs this summer. Uh, he wishes the Fed had stopped raising rates sooner, but he thinks they will stop after today. I do think that's the last one. And then uh, things begin to change in June and finally in September. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, the sooner the better. By this fall, Shepardson thinks the central bank will be forced to start cutting interest rates. Now, the Fed's own forecasts do not indicate that. On average, policymakers expect rates to go a little bit higher today and then hold steady for the rest of the year. Now, Scott, how much of the trouble in the banking sector stems from the Fed's own actions? Well, they're certainly related. Uh, Some banks, like Silicon Valley, were caught off guard by the rapid rise in interest rates. Of course, banks are supposed to prepare for that possibility, so that's mainly the fault of the bank's own management. But the Fed did issue a scathing report last week saying its own supervisors had failed to properly monitor Silicon Valley Bank. And that was a factor in the bank's collapse. Uh, Fed supervisors were slow to spot problems at the bank. And when the problems were identified, supervisors didn't act aggressively enough to make sure they were corrected. Uh, Michael Barr, who is the top uh, bank regulator at the Fed, Blame some of that on a policy choice that was made in 2019 to exempt all but the biggest banks from strict scrutiny, as well as a culture of light-touch regulation at the Fed, and he promised more aggressive bank oversight going forward. Uh, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell endorsed uh, Barr's recommendation, and I suspect the chairman will get some questions about that during his news conference this afternoon. NPR's Scott Horsley. Thanks, Scott. You're welcome. The White House organized a belated Eid celebration on Monday and invited hundreds of prominent American Muslims, then uninvited one. Mohammed Khairallah, the mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey, he's the longest-serving Muslim mayor in this country. He was given no explanation as to why. To talk about this, the mayor is with us now. Good morning. Good morning, Leila, to you and your listeners. Thank you for being here. I, I want to start with why you think this happened to you. So when I received the call from the White House and I was told it's the Secret Service and there's no explanation, um, I contacted the Council on American Islamic Relations, which informed me that I was indeed on a secret list uh, that was leaked recently in January and that I was added to the list in 2019, which put things together in my mind Mm. because all my traveling uh, difficulties was started in in 2019. So at this point, for some reason, I am on a secret list that the government denying it exists, and it's causing me and my family trouble. Now, this secret list you're referring to is a watch list. And the 2019 leaked list you're talking about was a hack. And on that list, the majority of those names are Arab Muslim sounding names based on what was on those hacked lists. Do you think this is a a situation of profiling? Absolutely. 100 percent. The fact that the list is uh, mostly Arabs and Muslims, the fact that we have no way to address why we are on the list uh, is is definitely uh, profiling and a lack of due process. And that's why a federal judge deemed that list to be 
uh, unlawful. However, our federal government continues to use that list despite the fact that uh, it was deemed unlawful. Have you ever been charged with a crime? Absolutely not. I, I you know, when I ask at the airports, it's it's all random. Uh, but to be 100% randomly selected every single time I go to the airport is just not a coincidence. What does it feel like to be constantly selected in this way, to be searched, to be questioned, to be denied entry to a Eid celebration at the White House? Well, it's humiliating to, to say the least. I mean, I could tell you when I was coming back from Canada uh, in 2021, I was detained in a, in a glass room and my toddler daughter would stand at the door asking me why she can't be with me and I'm I'm being held there for about two to three hours. There's no explanation. And how do you explain to a child uh, that your government is detaining your dad um, for reasons that he can't explain why uh, the government won't explain? Um, it's it's just baffling. It's in, in a country where we have institutions and we have a great constitution that protects the liberties of people to be targeted because of, of my name, ethnicity and religion is uh, is is just un unbelievable. It's it's basically what my crimes are. That's what you think is happening here. Your name and your religion is why you think this is happening to you. Uh, absolutely. Why is the list mostly Arabs and Muslims? What would you say, what would you want the White House to do? Have you heard anything from them at all? Well, no, they have been silent. The Obviously, when asked at the press conference, they referred the matter back to the Secret Service. However, this is a list that was created back in 2003 by uh, President Bush. So it is something that the executive branch can do something about. And we hope that the Biden administration can finally disband this list and correct the course of, of uh, how things are going and end this racial profiling. You know, there will be people listening to you who say these types of lists and this type of secrecy is necessary for the national security of this country, even if it is uncomfortable for you. What do you say to those people? Well, listen, I, as an elected official, I've been mayor for 17 years. I've been very close to former presidents, elected officials. This is not a very smart list. It's not an intelligent list. Uh, it's a dragnet that's not very effective. It uses racial profiling, ethnic profiling. So if the intent is to prevent me from meeting people, I've met these people plenty of times when the list was not used. So uh, I think we need more intelligent ways of protecting the nation rather than somebody writing a report about me that I can't know about or, and I'm assuming that's how I got on. Um, and I can't defend myself. I can't defend my name. I think inconvenience has to be justified, not just throwing a dragnet that's going to inconvenience 1.5 million people. If you got a call today from the White House and they said, Come, let's talk about this. Would you go? Uh, to talk about this, yes. I wouldn't go just to go, but yes, to talk about this. I think this needs to be addressed. It needs to be um, resolved. And when did your troubles at the airport actually start? And if you could describe the types of questioning that uh, you've received upon reentry to the U.S. So the first 
time I started experiencing difficulties was when we were going on a trip to Istanbul, which we didn't think about it as anything, like this could be anything. But when we returned from Istanbul at JFK, and we were the last to leave the airplane, the agents were at the, at the door, and they still said, oh, you were been randomly selected. So we go with them. They were and, waiting for you, and they said you were randomly selected. Yeah, and we were the last to leave the plane. So we go with them, and at the end of the conversation, and I had to end the conversation because the agent flat out asked me, did you meet any terrorists? As if the answer was going to say be a yes or no, which I said, listen, at this point, uh, I'm ending this conversation. I need a lawyer. And obviously, because of that, he said, do you understand? I'm going to take your phone. We're going to strip search you. So I'm like, do what you got to do. Uh, but this conversation is over. Mohammed Khayyadullah, the mayor of Prospect Park, New Jersey. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you, Leila. The White House has given no explanation as to why Khairallah was not allowed at the Eid festivities. The press secretary said the decision was up to the Secret Service. The Secret Service acknowledges barring the mayor from entering the White House and says it regrets the inconvenience but couldn't comment on, quote, specific protective means and methods used to conduct our security operations. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Good morning. Coming up in just a few minutes on Morning Edition, how the streaming economy is a factor in the Hollywood writer's strike. It's 20 minutes past 8. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Somerville Open Studios. This weekend, noon to 6, over 350 artists in 90 locations. Map, artist, and trolley info at somervilleopenstudios.org. Museum of Science. Maneuver through mind-bending illusions, 3D puzzles, and kinetic play at the new traveling exhibit, Mazes and Brain Games, coming soon. MOS.org. And Metro West Subaru, where same-day and next-day service appointments are available. Service until 9 on Route 9 in Natick. I'm WBUR reporter Simone Rios. My mom gave me my love for language, a sense of curiosity, and ideals like patience and open-mindedness. This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support and strengthen journalism that feeds your curiosity. Choose your perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. In our forecast, scattered showers today, temperatures in the 50s. Tonight, more rain, lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, scattered showers again, highs near 50 degrees. Clouds on Friday with temperatures in the 50s, but sunshine both days this weekend. It is 49 degrees right now in Boston. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world with stories behind each one and bottles inspired by favorite NPR shows. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Scripps News, committed to objective reporting that illuminates and informs the whole story. Available live with a TV antenna or streaming device. More at scriptsnews.com forward slash TV.
This is NPR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Faldin. And I'm A. Martinez. Members of the Writers Guild of America are on strike, and they say they can't make a living writing for the streaming platforms. We wanted to understand how the streaming services are different and how the strike might change the streaming industry. Paul Hardart is a professor at the NYU Stern School of Business. Earlier in his career, he was a Hollywood executive. Paul, so why does working for a streaming studio like, say, Netflix, change a writer's ability to make a living? Oh, it's a really good question. I think the main difference is it used to be that the incentives were linked. So the writers and the studios were trying to get people to watch the show and get high ratings and get people to pay attention to the show. Today, a streamer is trying to get people to subscribe to their service. So they're looking more at the aggregate of the service versus the individual show. And the shows are typically what, like eight episodes, right? Not a, not a typical network show that's uh, what, 20 something. Yeah, and if you think of your own habits, right, some of the shows that are popular now have big stars and they go for maybe four, five, seven, eight episodes. Or if it's a series, may only last for two to three seasons versus if you had a popular show in the past, it could go for as many as 10 or 12 seasons. So then given how many streaming services are struggling to show profits, how could studios then pay writers more? I mean, even if they wanted to, Paul. You know, I think the way it's changed is is most of these streaming services focus on a, a metric called ARPU, which is the average revenue per user. You know, they're more aligned with how the overall service is doing. And so I think what's happened is the technology has fundamentally changed how the studios do business and therefore uh, and that's also changed how we consume, consumers consume content, and that's led to a totally different paradigm. So I think the strike is basically an indication that the world has shifted and that a new paradigm has to be developed. If these streaming services, say they just say tomorrow they decided we're going to pay the writers more, um, how would that change things for the viewers? Would there be fewer scripted shows? Would there be more reality shows? Well, you are looking at things, the increase of sports or unscripted television. But I think, you know, humans and human nature since the dawn of time love stories that are written by creative concepts that sort of reflect our humanity. So I don't think that's going away. I think you just have to rethink how we are compensating the writers that are coming up with these amazing ideas. Have we been systematically, Paul, over the years conditioned to maybe adopt a streaming model as a way we watch our television. Um, you know, mentioned earlier how typically, you know, series on network television were 20-something episodes, and now we're getting used to eight. Are we kind of used to the way things are now and not really pining for the way things used to be? Well, I, I do think, I think of our own, you know, individual behavior, I think, and this is also, you know, sort of accelerated during the pandemic, is, you know, our, there's so many demands on our attention, whether it's TikTok, whether it's... Uh, podcasting and so i think there's so much choice that to get our attention and hold our attention has become increasingly difficult yeah because i gotta admit paul I'm, I'm clicking more on the short series than anything longer than eight episodes so i mean i'm kind of contributing to these shorter series meaning that these writers are getting paid not as much as they would be exactly and, and that's sort of the challenge and so i think whatever the negotiations evolve they have to address that the world has changed and, and you see that even as you know AI has been sort of in the public domain for about six months, and that's already something that's of, of grave concern to the Writers Guild. So you can see, even in the process of negotiating, the world is changing. So I think it, it's sort of an interesting time. And again, we do have to sort of look at, there's huge amounts of money being spent on content, and there just needs to be a new way of thinking about how people are compensated that basically align interests. 
One more quick thing, Paul. Why would the studios be willing to take these negotiations to where we are now? I mean, what upside is there for, for them? Uh, it's, a great, it's a great question. I, I think, you know, I think both parties would love there not to be a strike, but it's brinksmanship. Good enough answer as any other. Uh, Hollywood, former Hollywood executive Paul Hardart is a professor at the NYU Stern School of Business. Paul, thanks. Thank you. Seven people, five of them teenagers, were found dead at a home in rural eastern Oklahoma Monday. The community of Henrietta is trying to understand what happened. Elizabeth Caldwell from member station KWGS in Tulsa has more. For people around Henrietta, it started with an amber alert. Two teenagers were missing in Okmulgee County and could be in danger. It got worse. 14-year-old Ivy Webster and 16-year-old Brittany Brewer were found dead with five other people. Pastor Ryan Wells, who led a prayer vigil at Henrietta High School in the wake of the deaths, said the loss is unimaginable. It would be a tragedy. It was. It is a tragedy with one individual, but it is catastrophic when you have seven individuals, five um, from what I understand, five students that are just from this school. Included in the Amber Alert were details about a 39-year-old man named Jesse McFadden. He was about to stand trial on child pornography charges. McFadden's body was also found on the property. A woman told the Associated Press her 35-year-old daughter, Holly Guess, was among the dead, and so were her three grandchildren, 17-year-old Riley, 15-year-old Michael, and 13-year-old Tiffany. Records show Guess and McFadden had applied for a marriage license last year. Wells said the community is waiting for answers. You know, I think everything is just so raw at the moment. Um, and really, I think still gathering information. Uh, there's still a lot to be uncovered, it sounds like. The Ogmogee Sheriff's Office was the first on the scene, but the Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigation has stepped in, too. McFadden was released from prison in 2020 after serving more than 15 years for rape. Gerald Davidson with the OSBI said he has no information on why a registered sex offender under suspicion for child pornography would be around minors. Okay, I cannot answer that question. I don't know anything about what you're just speaking of, and of course that's a uh... That would probably be the uh, district attorney or, or someone else to answer that particular question, not me. The Okmulgee County District Attorney didn't return a request for more information. Davidson said law enforcement is still piecing together exactly what happened. Well, the next step is it's, it's an ongoing investigation. To cope with the tragedy and to deal with the details still to come, students at Henrietta High School will be able to seek counseling on campus. Officials say the medical examiner's report is expected soon and should have more information about just how the seven people died. For NPR News, I'm Elizabeth Caldwell in Henrietta, Oklahoma. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News station. In our forecast, clouds today, scattered showers, temperatures in the 50s. It's 8.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet and just society. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And The Huntington with Joy in Pandemic, a new play by Taylor Mack, directed by Loretta Greco. 
now through May 21st at the Calderwood BCA, HuntingtonTheater.org. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Dave Mattingly. Serbian authorities say a shooting at an elementary school in Belgrade has left eight students dead along with a security guard. Six other students and a teacher were wounded. NPR's Rob Schmitz says a 14-year-old boy is in custody. Police arrested the suspect, a 7th grade student, after he reportedly fired shots from his father's gun at other students and the school guard. Mass shootings in Serbia are rare, but authorities have repeatedly warned the public about a number of weapons left over in the country after war in the region in the 1990s. That school enrolls students from 1st through 8th grades. Authorities in Texas say a tip led them to a house where they arrested the man suspected of fatally shooting five of his neighbors last week. 38-year-old Francisco Oropeso was found hiding in a closet of a home about 10 miles from Cleveland, northeast of Houston, where that attack took place. Tim Keene is the chief deputy sheriff in San Jacinto County. There has been several arrests, but I can't go into the details on that. Investigators say Oropesa opened fire on his neighbors after one of them asked him to stop firing a weapon on his rural property because of a sleeping baby. Immigration officials say Oropesa is a Mexican national who's been deported from the U.S. four times. This is NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good morning. I'm Deborah Becker. Providence-based Citizens Financial Group reportedly was among the banks which sought to buy First Republic Bank from the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation over the weekend. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, analysts say the move shows that Citizens is trying to expand its national footprint. A successful takeover of First Republic would have doubled Citizens Bank's size. Federal regulators eventually chose to sell the failed bank to J.P. Morgan Chase. RBC Capital's markets bank analyst Gerard Cassidy says Citizens has other opportunities for growth after missing out on First Republic. It's not a prerequisite that you have to grow to achieve outsized shareholder returns. You do that through profitability. Citizens' effort was reported by several financial news outlets. The bank's officers wouldn't comment on the attempted bid, but said they have a, quote, responsibility to explore possibilities that make strategic sense for the company. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The state-run Veterans Home in Holyoke that was the site of a deadly COVID outbreak three years ago is getting federal money to build a new facility. The state announced yesterday that the Holyoke Veterans Home will get more than $160 million for the new space. It's not clear, though, when construction on a new facility might begin. Some Cape Cod lawmakers are proposing legislation to help address the region's seasonal housing crisis. One bill would give tax credits to employers who provide their workers with seasonal accommodations. Another proposal would create a 5 percent tax on revenue generated by some short-term rentals. State Senator Susan Moran represents parts of Plymouth and Barnstable counties, and she says addressing the housing crisis is essential to provide tourists with the level of service they've come to expect. We need a more robust workforce, and that means to really look at affordable housing in an acceptable way as a part of the incredibly interesting fabric of our community. Another bill would provide a tax credit to contractors who build affordable housing for their workers. The time is 834.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by William James College. A school psychology graduate degree opens rewarding careers working with children. Scholarships available for fall, williamjames.edu. In sports at the Garden tonight, it's Game 2 between the Celtics and Philadelphia 76ers. The Seas trail that series one game to none. Red Sox won their third straight game last night, beat the Blue Jays 7-6. to The teams play again tonight. Our weather forecast, scattered showers today, highs in the 50s. More showers tonight with lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, clouds and rain, highs near 50, and cloudy on Friday with temperatures in the mid-50s. It is 49 degrees right now in Boston. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from CFP, Certified Financial Planner Professionals, committed to acting in their clients' best interests. Learn more at letsmakeaplan.org. From Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort, offering a small ship experience with a shore excursion included in every port, destination-focused dining, and programs designed for cultural enrichment. Viking.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station, this is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm e. Martinez in Culver City, California. And I'm Leila Faldil in Washington, D.C. The results from the assessment known as the Nation's Report Card are out today, and they show significant declines. The new numbers on how well students in this country are learning their history and civics aren't good. NPR Sequoia Carrillo joins us now to walk us through the findings. Good morning, Sequoia. Good morning. Okay, so let's get right to it. How bad are these numbers? So the scores are low. The history scores are the lowest recorded since the assessment began back in 1994, and this year marked the first ever drop in civic scores. And this data comes from the National Assessment for Educational Progress, or NAEP. It's a test administered every four years to a representative sampling of eighth graders across the country. For history, it has students look at different categories like democracy, culture, technology, and world role. This year, there were declines in all subjects. In fact, only about 14% of students reached or exceeded the proficient mark in history. And in civics, only 22% of students met that same benchmark. Those are significant drops from the last time students were tested back in 2018. Wow. I mean, is this something we should have expected? What are the factors maybe that played a role here? Pandemic? The pandemic definitely played a role, and this was just not a normal four years for students, but we already knew that. There was actually a bigger warning sign back in October when the counterpart to this assessment in math and reading came out. And yesterday when I was talking through these latest scores with experts, they said the dips in reading and math from the fall gave a big indication of what was to come here. And it makes sense if you think about it. If kids are already struggling with reading, then when you test them on documents like the Federalist Papers or a section of the Constitution, they're going to have trouble with it. Mm. Teaching history is built on the foundation of reading comprehension. So as one goes down, so goes the other. But in this case, it just dropped more than expected. What about civics? This subject was harder to predict. There's been some research that when there's a high-profile election, civic scores can go up because there are lessons in government and democracy, so they're not just learning about it in the classroom, but they're also seeing it happen around them in real life. So there was some hope that these civic scores would hold or even go up with the 2020 election and, of course, the high-profile midterms last year, but they did not. They actually dipped for the first time. 
So a lot of struggling students out there, if there are declines in reading and math and now history and civics, what's a path forward for these students? What are educators going to do? I talked with Carrie Sautner from the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia about exactly this. She's an educator in civics and history and says the subjects are very intertwined. But like I said before, so is reading. So are many subjects. So what do we do when we have significant drops in everything? Mm. And here's what she told me. All reality, we need to make sure our kids are engaged citizens. And that means they need to be informed with the knowledge and the skills to do this work. And that takes every class. Meaning not just pouring more resources into reading and math, but working to improve schools across the curriculum. And at a time when there are huge concerns about what Americans know of their history and how their government works, this issue couldn't be more vital. NPR's Sequoia Carrillo, thank you so much. Thank you. A Texas man accused of fatally shooting five people, including a nine-year-old child, has been captured after a four-day search. Police say 38-year-old Francisco Oropesa was arrested just miles away from the house where the killings occurred last Friday and that the shooting may have stemmed from a noise complaint from a neighbor. Joining us now is Lucio Vasquez with Houston Public Media, who's been following this story. Good morning. Good morning. So what can you tell us about the arrest? Authorities say Francisco Oropesa was arrested yesterday evening in a home about 10 miles away from the scene of the shooting in Cleveland, Texas. It's an area about 45 miles north of Houston. Police say he was found hiding in a closet under a pile of laundry in the home and was arrested without incident. During a press conference last night, San Jacinto County Sheriff Greg Caper said he hoped the victim's families could find comfort in his arrest. They can rest easy now um, because he is behind bars and he will live out his life behind bars for killing those five. Orpesa is now being held on a $5 million bond at a local jail. He's currently facing five counts of murder, and as of now, no federal charges have been filed. Now, this was a four-day search, the killing of five people. Can you just recap what happened and what's been going on with the search? Yeah, this all began Friday night when authorities say Oropesa's neighbors had asked him to stop shooting his AR-15 in his yard because they were trying to put a baby to sleep. This prompted him to walk over with the rifle in hand and begin shooting, which left three adults, one teenager, and a nine-year-old boy dead. Over the next four days, more than 250 local, state, and federal officers scoured the Cleveland area in search of the alleged shooter. They also placed an $80,000 reward for any information leading to his arrest. After receiving more than 200 tips over the last few days, the FBI eventually got a promising lead yesterday evening, which led them to a specific house. About an hour later, Oropesa was in custody. And what can you tell us about the victims? Well, moments before the shooting, four tight-knit Honduran families were enjoying each other's time that night in that house. By the time the shooting ceased, five people were dead. Nine-year-old Daniel Guzman... 21-year-old Diana Alvarado, 18-year-old Jonathan Casaraz, 25-year-old Sonia Tabut, and 31-year-old Julissa Rivera. According to the Associated Press, Guzman's elementary school had held a vigil Monday where his classmates and loved ones were setting up a small monument in his honor. The FBI says the families are planning upcoming funerals at the moment and asked the media to give them privacy during the process. Now, during this search, um, the governor, Greg Abbott, described the victims as illegal immigrants. And a lot of people, there was backlash. A lot of people saw that as dehumanizing language. If you could talk Mm -hmm. about what's happened and how that shifted the conversation around immigration status. 
Yeah, this happened on Sunday, as you mentioned, Governor Greg Abbott had tweeted the fact that these people, well, at least it wasn't a fact at the moment, but in that moment, he had called these five victims illegal immigrants. And as you can imagine, there was backlash. Yeah. A lot of uh, critics had said that the immigration status of the victims had nothing to do with the shooting itself or the manhunt of the alleged shooter. Uh, eventually, Abbott slightly backpedaled and said that it appeared that one of the victims was in the U.S. legally. As for Oropesa, authorities say he was undocumented and had been deported from the U.S. several times before. Lucio Vasquez with Houston Public Media. Thank you so much. Thank you. Later on All Things Considered, the U.S. Constitution guarantees the right to a trial in a courtroom for a jury. But these days, nine out of ten federal prosecutions is wrapped up with a plea deal. So is justice really being served? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. And coming up on Morning Edition, the White House visit to Brazil. In our weather forecast, scattered showers today. Temperatures in the 50s. Tonight, more showers. Lows in the 40s. Tomorrow, clouds, rain, highs near 50 degrees. For Friday, mostly cloudy with temperatures in the 50s. Sunshine expected this weekend, though. Sunshine both days. Right now, it is 49 degrees in Boston. WBUR supporters include Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com slash ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. And Boston Ballet School's Next Generation, with the Best of Boston Arts Training, returning to Citizens Bank Opera House on Friday, May 19th. Tickets at bostonballet.org. In business news, the Natick-based company You Will says it'll put $30 million toward growing its college mental health platform. The education tech startup raised the money during its latest round of funding. UMass Amherst says it will lay off more than 80 employees in its fundraising offices. Those jobs are being transferred to the private sector. University officials say the state employee positions need to be moved because of what it says are compliance issues. Employees are Fighting the move, they say it'll result in a loss of benefits, including their retirement funds. One of Boston's largest apartment buildings is being sold for almost $440 million. The Church Park Complex next to Symphony Hall on Mass Ave is home to more than 500 apartments. The complex also includes a Whole Foods and CVS store. The Boston Business Journal reports the sale is one of the city's largest residential real estate transactions since the start of the pandemic. The time is 8.45. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BMW. You can experience the all-electric BMW iX with BMW performance, luxury, and technology, featuring a go-anywhere range of up to 307 miles. Test drives are available at your local BMW center. 
It's a morning edition from NPR News. I'm Leila Falden. And I'm A. Martinez. A top Biden administration official is in Brazil at a time when that country is seeking recognition as a global player. The Brazilian president just led a huge trade delegation to China, and Russia's foreign minister recently visited Brazil. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. The way Linda Thomas-Greenfield sees it, the U.S. and Brazil have a lot in common. They're the two largest democracies in the region. This is a relationship that is historical, it's broad, it's deep. The U.S. ambassador to the U.N. is making a point on this trip to talk about racial justice and poverty with local students and separately with Brazil's first lady. She also met with the foreign minister as Brazil's close ties with China hover over the visit. It was discussed. Again, our position uh, is that we don't tell countries, sovereign countries, who to choose to partner with. What we're here to discuss is our partnership. We have a very strong partnership with uh, the country and with the people of Brazil. That's true, says Bill McElhenney, who wrote about Brazil in a German Marshall Fund report about so-called global swing states. He says the U.S. does have close ties, but China is Brazil's biggest trading partner. And I think to see that, you only need to look at the large ministerial delegation that Lula took to China last month and the really meaty economic and security agenda of his meetings there. So there's definitely an effort by Brazil to rebalance relations more toward Beijing. In part, that's for business reasons, but McElhenney says President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva is also trying to raise his country's global profile on the world stage, and that means hedging his bets in the U.S. competition with China and also with Russia. There's a long tradition in Brazilian foreign policy of trying to hedge and just stay out of the way of great power conflict. But in practice today, uh, I think that is a tricky thing to pull off. And Ukraine really illustrates this. It's a very poignant fault line. When Lula was in China, he echoed Russia's talking points, blaming the West for encouraging the war in Ukraine. Bruna Santos, who runs the Brazil Institute at the Wilson Center in Washington, says those remarks did not go over well. By attempting to like dismantle or questioning existing powers like the United States and Europe, I think that Lula has triggered more suspicion than confidence. Ambassador Thomas Greenfield wasn't even asked about Ukraine when she held an hour-long fireside chat with university students here in Brasilia. But she did talk about it, saying this is a conflict that should matter to every UN member state. Ukraine is on the front lines of fighting for all of us. They're fighting for democracy. They're fighting against a bully who thought that it was okay uh, to invade a country, take their territory, and kill their people and rape their women. Thomas Greenfield later told reporters that she's encouraging Brazilian government officials to engage more with Ukraine, especially if this country wants to present itself as a peacemaker. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, Brasilia. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm E. Martinez. And I'm Leila Faldin. 
And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Coming up on Morning Edition, the ripple effects of the Hollywood writers' strike. It's 10 minutes before 9. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Harvard Art Museums, with From the Andes to the Caribbean, American Art from the Spanish Empire, free on Sundays, harvardartmuseums.org. I'm Tiziana Deering. My mom gave me the best gifts I could ask for. Talia, Tony, Chris, Bill, Ted, Carla, Stacy, Lisa, my siblings. What did your mom give you? Your siblings, your joy, your curiosity? This Mother's Day, thank your mom with beautiful Winston flowers and send them through WBUR to support storytelling that brings you joy and feeds your curiosity. Choose the perfect gift and save 10% at WBUR.org. And here are some of the news stories we're following this Wednesday morning. Russia claims Ukraine tried to assassinate President Vladimir Putin overnight in a drone attack on the Kremlin. A 14-year-old boy is in custody in Serbia after shooting and killing nine people at a school there. And the Federal Reserve is expected to raise interest rates again today in an effort to curb inflation. The BBC will have the top global headlines in about 10 minutes. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR, on the WBUR mobile app, and at WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. In our forecast, clouds, scattered showers today, temperatures in the upper 50s, more showers tonight with lows in the 40s and clouds and scattered showers again tomorrow. Investors look askance at other regional banks that share some traits with the one that collapsed this weekend. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Progressive. Progressive Commercial Insurance offers personalized rates and customizable coverages for your business vehicles. More at ProgressiveCommercial.com. And by VBrick. VBrick unlocks the power of video for customers' business processes. VBrick.com slash marketplace to learn more. I'm David Brancaccio in New York. An index that tracks stocks in regional mid-sized banks fell 5.5% yesterday. Investors targeted many, but three in particular, PacWest, Western Alliance, and Metropolitan Bank, with their stocks yesterday falling 28%, 15%, and 20% respectively. Marketplace's Nova Safo explains why. In announcing the purchase of First Republic Bank after regulators seized it over the weekend, J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon declared this part of the crisis is over. But investors are not ready to ease their concerns over the effects higher interest rates may be having on regional banks' balance sheets. All three mid-sized lenders under scrutiny now, PacWest, Western Alliance, and Metropolitan Bank, have reported results for the first quarter of the year, and all three reported outflows of deposits. Western Alliance and PacWest are down about $6 billion each. The much smaller Metropolitan Bank reported outflows of about $150 million. The problem is that regional banks may be stuck with lots of low-interest bonds. With depositors pulling large sums, these banks might have to sell at a loss to pay out withdrawals. I'm Novasafo for Marketplace. If I'm not being too forward, may I see the palm of your hand? Hmm, interesting. I see a quarter point increase in interest rates in your future. And this is likely to happen shortly after 2 Eastern time today. This would be the 10th increase as the Fed tries to cool the economy as a way to tamp down inflation. 
We'll also be listening to see if the Fed chair says anything about the second biggest bank failure in history when First Republic collapsed over the weekend and giant J.P. Morgan Chase picked up most of it. Marketplace's Justin Ho has been looking into how the banking industry is likely to change going forward. For one, experts told me more regulation is probably coming, at least when it comes to mid-sized banks, like the ones that failed. But one fear is that the industry will become more consolidated. This has been happening in the banking industry throughout the last few decades. But if more banks fail, bigger banks could gobble them up and get even more concentration. If bigger banks keep getting bigger, one side effect could be that newer businesses might have a harder time getting loans. That's because national banks tend to favor established businesses, where it's easier and quicker to figure out whether they're creditworthy. Another side effect is that banks could close branches. Over the last 10 years, merger-related branch closures have had an outsized impact on lower income and rural communities. I'm Justin Howe for Marketplace. If the Fed does hike again today, it would put their key short-term rate at a 16-year high. The benchmark 10-year interest rate is down slightly this morning, 3.4%. After the Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ each fell more than 1% yesterday, stock index futures are back up a bit now. S&P and NASDAQ futures are all up two-tenths percent. Hollywood writers hit the picket lines yesterday. The previous contract has now expired, and the union, the Writers Guild of America, has been negotiating with TV and film producers. Pay is the big thing. The wider entertainment industry ecosystem is going to feel this. For instance, Greater Atlanta is a center for filming. Marketplace's Lily Jamali has that. This time of year is usually one of the busiest for companies that serve film and TV productions, like Atlanta Craft Services in Georgia. Founder Zach Ebrams says his business, providing food on set, has figured out how to handle the annual onslaught. We've built a you know pretty solid network of people that we can call on. If we do have like multiple productions, you know, sometimes we end up having to turn business down. Not this year. Ibrams says most productions book three to four months ahead, but in the lead up to the writer's strike. We've not had a whole lot of uh, you know, interest or inquiries in the services that we provide, I would say, really for the past few months. Reality shows have been helping. Lego Masters wrapped a week and a half ago in the Atlanta area. And in Marietta, Georgia, Parks, Recreation and Facilities Director Rich Buss says he's getting some calls about commercials, too. I mean, there's a lot of good benefit to local folks in town who rent out parking lots for base camps and do things like that. But an industry that brought $4.4 billion to the state of Georgia last year has been fairly quiet. Local merchants aren't getting the influx of customers that spend money in Marietta when production is happening. Buss says the city usually issues around 50 production permits each fiscal year, with just two months left. I think we're at about 31 right now, so we're a little behind pace. The last writer strike 15 years ago lasted 100 days. I'm Lily Jamali for Marketplace. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Amazon Business. From small business to big enterprise and everything in between, Amazon Business helps simplify the supplies buying process. Amazon Business, your partner for smart business buying. And by Charles Schwab. Schwab understands that wealth management is personal. That's why Schwab offers flexible, personalized financial planning crafted for their investors' individual goals. Learn more at schwab.com. 
The advances we're living in artificial intelligence already have some investors moving away from companies seen as facing stiff new competition from the software robots. Stocks in several big education companies are down sharply. California-based Chegg, which does many things, including online study guides, saw its stock price cut in half yesterday. This after the CEO said that ChatGPT is hurting Chegg's growth. Vishal Gupta, professor at the University of Southern California's Marshall School of Business, took the long view in a conversation with our editorial partners at the BBC. He said new forms of AI can do pieces of what educators do, but not everything. Still, the nature of education he thinks will change. The reality is that at present, AI is pretty good at taking over low-level cognitive tasks, but somehow is yet to be able to really uh, definitively take over high-level cognitive tasks. So what this really means is that you're not going to see sort of jobs disappear, but rather you might see jobs change in shape and shift tasks more towards having human doing high stakes, high level cognitive tasks and offloading grunt work onto the AI tool. This morning, Chegg stock is rebounding some back up about 5 percent pre-market. The big UK-based education company Pearson saw its stock fall 15 percent yesterday, but it's up this morning in London trading erasing about half of yesterday's loss. In New York, I'm David Brancaccio. It's Marketplace Morning Report. From APM, American Public Media. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by summer term at Boston University with a wide range of courses in math and science, including pre-med offerings in biology, chemistry, neuroscience, and physics. BU also offers over 50 math courses, statistics, calculus, probability, linear algebra, differential equations, and more visit bu.edu slash summer. And Grogan and Company, fine art and jewelry auctioneers, whose spring auction weekend is May 6th and 7th. Learn more at groganco.com. I'm WBUR State House reporter Steve Brown, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime on our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.